0: coming up on this week's episode of Tech Snap the FBI releases that APT6 is screwing the world <laughs> Unit oil is screwing the world and the visa system is screwed in the world
1: screwed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Harry- oh my god screwed Harry- oh <laughs> Welcome to TechSnap, episode two sixty-three, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly System Administration Podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Noah July, and joining me is the great God of BSD, Alan Jude. First show hosting together. Alan, how yes. are you?
1: It's you know, we've teamed up together a number of times, but never on a show. No,
0: yeah. We yeah, building computers we have. We never yes. talked about anything, at least yeah. on the air. The- Um, So you're going to have to walk me through a little bit of this because I've never done TechSnap before. So I understand that you're the BSD god and you explain uh, all of the technical things to those of us that don't understand them.
1: Right. That's – well, it's more taking the news stories and breaking them down so that uh, you can understand what's important about it rather than just that it happened. Great. Yeah. Uh, So – go ahead. No, go ahead. I don't have anything else to say. Okay. (laughs) Well, there you go. Well, how about we jump into the first story then this week? Yes. Let's do that. Uh, so the first story here is that the FBI has uh, – oh, no, that's not the first story. That's
0: not the first story. How'd that get up there? The wrong tab. I guess so. <laughs> who, who left that tab up there? Chris. All
1: right. FBI. I got it. Uh, All right. Yes. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> so the FBI says that uh, a mysterious group, later identified as APT-6, uh, has been poning the government for the last five years. Uh, So the Fed's warned that a group of malicious cyber actors, whom security experts believe are the government-sponsored hacking group known as APT6, have compromised and sold sensitive information from various government and commercial networks since at least 2011, according to the FBI alert, which was obtained by uh, Motherboard.com. The official advisory is available over at the Open Threat Exchange, uh, which is the first link there. Uh, the alert, which is also available online, shows that foreign government hackers are still successfully hacking and stealing data from U.S. government servers. through activities going unnoticed for years at a time. This comes just months after the U.S. government revealed that a group of hackers, widely believed to be working for the Chinese government, uh, had more than uh, had infiltrated the Office of Personnel Management for more than a year. Uh, in the process, they stole highly sensitive data about several million government workers and even spies. Because you know, even spies get paid. <laughs> uh, so, in the alert, the FBI lists a long series of websites used as command and control servers to launch phishing attacks. So, uh, in the actual report on the Open Threat Exchange, they have all the servers that they saw malicious activity from. So, that's websites where the phishing files were hosted, or domains where the emails came from, or machines that uh, the virus once installed. The machine would connect back to to get instructions. <laughs> Uh, So all that data is usually released in this type of uh, alert so that as an administrator for another network, you can, you know, preemptively try to block those so that if the same attack is tried against you, it's already blocked. Uh, They say, in furtherance of computer network exploitation or CNE activities, read hacking, uh, in the United States and abroad since at least 2011, domains controlled by hackers were suspended as of late December 2015. So they went to the registrar's and had the domain shut down mm-hmm. uh, which is a little bit scary that they could do that but in this case it was for the good but not always with the government uh, according to the alert it's also unclear if the hackers have been pushing uh, pushed out of the systems or if they're still inside the hacked networks uh, that's why it's called an advanced persistent threat mm-hmm. because the attacks are fairly persistent you know they they don't just break in once and then you can kick them out right you know they do things like install a trojan in the uh, firmware of a printer on the network so once you erase the virus and reboot all the computers they can get reinfected from the printer <laughs> right and that's that's pretty typical right i mean
0: that's yeah. that's what you look for is is when you're on the other side of that when you're actually looking to penetrate a system after you've gained access you're looking to elevate your access right
1: right and also make it persistent so that if you can mm-hmm. uh you get in and you you know leave yourself an, an extra door prop open mm-hmm. so that you can get out so that you're not being detected but you can always get back in when you need to
0: avoid detection. Sure?
1: Yeah. Yeah, cuz you know, uh in a previous episode we talked a bit about how the shift is switching a little bit away from these advanced persistent threats where you break into a system and stay in there for years to the type where you get <laughs> in there, get some stuff and then get out with no trace left so that you don't get caught so that you can get back in later. Whereas right. once you're caught, they will start improving security and then, you know, locking that door.
0: Right. Exactly. And you limit your you, you limit your ability to expand your access and potentially find yeah. more yeah. vulnerabilities
1: or also to be able to use that same vulnerability against another place right mm-hmm. once you get caught using it patches come out and then
0: ooh yeah that's a good point if you used a, if you've used a given uh, threat against one place and and they close that and they notify somebody else then that potentially eliminates all of your future targets as well
1: exactly good uh, point you, sir you want you want to keep your zero day secret so you can keep using it over and over again uh, at least if you're a government who's trying to break into things yeah it says that here we have a quote from uh, Michael Adams, who's an information security expert who served for more than two ga- decades at the U.S. Special Operations Command. Mm-hmm. He said, "It looks like they were in the government computers for years before they were caught, and uh, you know nobody knows exactly where they are." They say anybody who's been in that network all this long, uh, they could be anywhere and everywhere. You know, they get in all the little nooks and crannies, and you know, mm-hmm. just because they've gotten into you know, we know they got into this computer, but we kind of have to assume they got into every computer unless we can prove otherwise. Right. Yeah, That's good. The, yeah. Uh, then a researcher from uh, Kaspersky says, this is one of the earlier advanced persistent threat groups that we've seen. Uh, they definitely go back uh, further than 2011 uh, or whenever the FBI is saying. Uh, Kaspersky has evidence on these guys that say go back to at least 2008. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's a long time. Yeah. Uh,
0: and how how do you think they've avoided detection this long?
1: Um, it depends. You know, some of the ways they've got in, they've been pretty ingenious. And you know, basically, if you have a root kit or something, then there's no audit logs, and you know, the files are invisible if you're trying to browse to them using you know the the operating system. Because if you're if you're in there with a rootkit, you can just make it so that when you go to that directory, it returns as doesn't exist, and uh, you you basically own the whole system and you're masking everybody's view of it. So you can't, you know, even an administrator looking at the computer that's infected can't see the
0: infection. Even somebody that knows what they're looking for might have not caught it. Let me ask you something. Do you have any specific advice that you could give people if, you know, essentially to try to avoid or prevent this happening to somebody else?
1: Well, uh, this particular level of things, a little bit less, you know, it brings back that uh, James Micken article from uh, Usenix, you know, if you're being massotted upon There's no amount of patching that's going to help you. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Uh, But in general, you know, it's, um, as we've seen from, uh, for example, that article we saw from the um, Australian communications guys, basically the Australian version of the NSA, Mm -hmm. software whitelists. If the only applications that can run are ones where you, you know, this checksum is definitely known to be good, Mm -hmm. then the viruses just can't run. Now you stop everything else from working too, and you get a lot of kickback from your users. So it's it's hard to actually uh, apply it. But on very secure systems, you basically have to do this, right? You have to have software whitelisting where hmm. only these applications are allowed to run, and nothing else, uh, or at least have you know signing applications so that you know it has to be an official binary from Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it can't just be any code signing because we've seen the hackers. You know they break into some small company that makes you know like a a WinZip alternative, right. and they steal their code signing key and sign the malware with it. And now, you know, Microsoft tried to ratchet this up by, in later versions of Windows, you can't install unsigned drivers, right? Mm-hmm. Only drivers that have been signed. But when is that, it actually that you steal can't, a code signing.
0: Uh, is it actually that you can't install them, or does it just prompt you and tell you, this driver is unsigned,
1: would you like to continue anyway? I think up to seven you can continue anyway, but after that, it won't let you at all. I know really? this was a problem for some open source stuff, like even like OpenVPN, because they had to get a code signing certificate to sign the, the tap driver to do the virtual network interface. Gotcha. It, it definitely caused some complications for some people. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, <clears throat> anything else
0: you want to add to that particular story?
1: Uh, just one more quote here. Um, the guys from FireEye, which are a little less conservative about blaming things in particular, um, the research from Kaspersky declined to say whether the group uh, that was doing this was definitely Chinese or not? Mm-hmm. Uh, just saying that the uh, the targets align with the interests of state-sponsored attackers. Whereas FireEye, who's very glad to blame China for everything, <laughs> confirmed that the domain list in the alert was associated with APT6 and uh, it, that it was one of their malware backdoors that was used. And they say the hackers have been targeting U.S. and U.K. defense industrial base, so going after defense contractors and companies that you know to get plans for things like the F35 and so on. Right. They say APT6 is likely a nation's uh state sponsored group based in China. And it has been uh, dormant for the past several years. So apparently uh they've actually not been active uh in the la- in 2014 and forward.
0: I guess that's not terribly surprising as that's probably where the high value targets <clears throat> are. Right. I mean that's where the and profitable the, the other information thing is. is
1: you know, the whole point of advanced persistent threat is getting in and maintaining access, but not getting caught. And as soon as you do, you kind of want to disband and start fresh and not be associated with that anymore. So while the same group of people might be still doing this, they're probably doing it, um, you know, they started Scratch with all new s- stuff and had to abandon all their old stuff because once people start detecting it, you, you want to, you know, start fresh and be anonymous again.
0: That makes perfect sense.
1: Anything, Anything else? Oh, well, sorry. Good. Uh, another researcher from a different security company who ref- uh, requested anonymity because he's not allowed to speak about this stuff said that the current campaign is of an older group and likely that the FBI investigation is still ongoing. Uh, but at this point, it's unclear whether the FBI's investigation will lead to any concrete results. You know, we've seen a couple of years ago, the U.S. Uh, did charges against a bunch of Chinese military uh, members for hacking U.S. companies. But it's not clear that anything like that will actually come out of this story.
0: Gotcha. Now, would you say one of uh, would you say a good practice might be to um, try to compartmentalize different uh, different processes, and if you can, get those on separate machines if you can afford to. Uh,
1: a lot of that, yes. If you can, basically, uh, you want to do least privilege wherever you can, right? So that even if someone does take over, say the secretary's machine, she doesn't have access to Active Directory to right. add new users or whatever. Um, separating your machines when you can. If you have very sensitive data keeping that on a separate network that maybe is even air-gapped so it can't be got through the network, mm-hmm. uh, and things like that. It really depends on uh, your thing. But if you watch last week's episode, at the very end, uh, Google just published their new perimeterless uh, security policy. Mm-hmm. Basically, instead of the old typical one of, you know, everything in our LAN is ours and, and we trust it and everything outside is the internet and we don't, uh, theirs is perimeterless, meaning meaning they, they decide whether they trust each individual machine based on uh, behavior it's exhibiting and who's using it, rather than just assuming everything that's in your network is trusted because you can't really assume everything in your LAN is trusted when you know uh, a less sophisticated user with a workstation can fall for a phishing attack, get malware and start spreading it and now it's inside your LAN, and that's you know they' if they're already over inside the walls, then your firewall is not going to do much for you. Right. And that
0: makes perfect sense. So the problem, of course, is that computers, at least last time I checked, tend to be kind of expensive, right? And so trying to go over uh, you know, to a company and buy 15 servers so that I can right. have each one running a separate process, that gets to be a little pricey.
1: Right. Um, and you can have things like virtualization and containers. Uh, but really, it's, in this case, it's more about uh, network segmentation, even mm-hmm. just... Uh, Making sure that only the people that need to have access to the servers that have sensitive information. Right. Rather than just being on the LAN and accessible to anybody inside the company.
0: Right. And a great way to do that is, of course, to virtualize on virtual servers. And, you Mm -hmm. know, in today's day and age, we have access to a number of different solutions that allow us to virtualize different, uh, you know, so we can put each individual service on its own server. And I've been doing that for a long time with DigitalOcean. And I know that you've used DigitalOcean, right? They support yes. BSD. So, yep. uh, but DigitalOcean...
1: Uh, backup mail servers, uh, DNS servers, uh, even our company's status page to, to announce, uh, like, downtime or maintenance and so on. We needed someone that wasn't inside our infrastructure that would be up if, if something went bad and all, all scale Engine was down. Right. Uh, we needed something off-site, and DigitalOcean's worked great for that. You know, spin up the machine really quick, and it just works. Exactly. And the ability to jump
0: in and spin one up on demand is one of the things that drives or makes it such a useful tool. So, for example, we were talking here in the studio about different ways that we can actually set up the broadcasting rigs in here so that we can bring the content in a more reliable fashion. And one of the key components of that is going to be we need one place that uh, that is essentially going to run as a consolidation server that will bring in a bunch of different um feeds, if you will, and then aggregate those and then send those out, obviously, to Scale Engine, you know, mm-hmm. the CDN so that, the you know, the viewers can actually get to it. And when Rakai and I were actually kind of hammering some of that out, one of the things we came up with was we are going to have to buy a dedicated machine here in the studio to use. Well, not so. Actually, it turns out we were able to get that up and running on DigitalOcean. Now, right. I know that it works because I was able to, and I, I know that uh, you've played with the YubiKey, even though I don't think it's in widespread use for you, but right. I have one that actually sits inside of my laptop, and so I spun up the DigitalOcean droplet, set it up, uh, configured exactly the way we, it, Rakai and I needed it. I was able to actually test it from the airport. <laughs> so i was I was spinning up an airport, and you know we don 't have a lot of great bandwidth on those on those stupid go go uh, hotspot things, whatever the yep. airport has you know, it 's very limited bandwidth, but it was enough that I was able to get the 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 droplet spun up and then once I did that and I was SSH into it, then I had full access to DigitalOcean's tier one bandwidth um, yep. and so and I, we, you know the the ability to select the data center that we put that uh, DigitalOcean droplet in means that when i 'm here in uh, the Seattle area, we can have a digital ocean droplet that is optimized for this area. And when I'm back in North Dakota or uh, for my friends on the East Coast, we can put a server over in that data center. Data center. And I know that they're constantly expanding uh, all over the world, actually, to provide uh, you know essentially servers everywhere.
1: Yeah, and the other thing uh, I just kind of scrolled by on the screen there is now they have support for team accounts, which is busy. Oh, really it's a big thing that sets it apart from. Having, you know, being something an individual developer uses to do something, actually doing stuff on uh, for a company is with the team account. You have one person that's, you know, paying the bill or whatever, but they can give access. So, you know, Chris doesn't have to share his password with you and Rakai. Mm-hmm. You can all three of you have separate uh, logins that all access the same resources in those servers. And you have fine grained access control. Awesome. Yeah. And it, it definitely it just shows the maturity of the platform that it can handle that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's something a lot of other, you know, similar uh, virtualization places don't offer. And it makes a big difference when you're working with multiple people.
0: It sure does. We'll have to play with that because that's something we mm-hmm. can definitely put into use. So Alan, tell me about this next story.
1: Yes. Uh, so this one's kind of uh, builds on the trend we had last week of uh, leaked information and uh, usually stolen through computer compromises uh, affecting politics and the rest of the world. So this one's a story uh, about UniOil, which is this company uh, that basically facilitates for other oil companies. Uh, and uh, through a cache of documents, uh, emails, and so on that were stolen from their computer systems, it turns out uh, investigative journalists have found out they've been uh, bribing people in basically every country of the world. Uh, so after a six-month investigation spanning two continents, uh, Fairfax Media and the Huffington Post have revealed that billions of dollars of government contracts were awarded as a direct result of bribes paid on behalf of firms including uh, Rolls-Royce, uh, Halliburton, Australia's uh, Leighton Holdings, and Korean heavyweights like Samsung and Hyundai. Uh, a massive leak of confidential documents and uh, a large cache of emails uh, has for the first time exposed the true extent of corruption within the oil industry – implicating dozens of leading companies, bureaucrats, and politicians in a sophisticated global web of bribery. Uh, So the investigation mostly centered around a company from Monaco called UniOil. And basically, they acted as the middleman, uh, you know, so that on the books, the oil company is hiring a contractor to go do something. And uh, except what that contractor doing is bribing officials in other countries to make things happen. Uh, following a coded ad in a French newspaper, a series of class- clandestine meetings and midnight phone calls led to the reporters obtaining hundreds of thousands of uh, doc- documents leaked from the owner of the company. Uh, so we don't know who leaked them, but the documents were stolen from the owner of the company. The leaked files expose uh, as corrupt uh, two Iraqi oil ministers, a fixer linked to the Syrian dictator Bashir uh, al-Assad, uh, senior officials from Libya, Iran, uh powerful people from the United Arab Emirates and Kuwait uh, and many other people. Western firms uh, involved include, uh, like we said, uh, Rolls-Royce, Petrofac, FMC Technologies, Cameron uh, uh, Weatherford, uh, Italian giants like ENI and uh, Sempem, even German companies like Man Turbo, which is also Man Diesel, uh, Siemens, uh smb offshore indian companies like uh, larsen tubbro etc and it uh showed the offshore arms of even australian companies being involved <coughs> sorry uh but mostly it's that these files were basically stolen through computer hacking and are making a big difference uh in our understanding of what's happening in the world uh the leaked files reveal that some people in these firms believe they were hiring a genuine lobbyist while others knew or suspected, at least, that they were just funding bribery uh, and chose to turn a blind eye to it. Uh, The files exposed the betrayal of ordinary people in the Middle East. Uh, After Saddam Hussein was toppled, the U.S. declared Iraqi oil would be managed to benefit the Iraqi people. Today, in part of one of the uh, global bribe factory exposes, those claims are completely demolished. Um, They say that the company has almost perfected the art of corruption and doing this to people. It says uh, it called Zuno Oil and uh, run by members of a family called the uh, Ashani family. Mm -hmm. They're millionaires who rub shoulders with princes, sheikhs, uh, and business elite from both Europe and America. Uh, They say the way they make money is simple. Oil-rich countries uh, often suffer poor governance and high levels of corruption. So, Unioil's business plan is to pay, uh, play on the fear of large Western companies that they can't win contracts without bribing people. Hmm. So, whether or not that's actually true, Unioil sells them what looks on paper like a legitimate way to pay for service and get the result they want. Hmm. You know, They're selling it as lobbying, but it's really just bribery. Right, right. Which kind of sounds familiar. <laughs> uh the operatives then bribe officials in the oil producing nations to help, uh, these clients win government funded projects. Uh, there's a bunch of deals and examples in there. I think there was one from Iran where the guy was like, you know, I've I've spent this much running this. Uh, we need British oil to pay us some more money so we can finish this. Uh, and they say leaked information aside, uh, they would ensure that contracts are awarded without a competitive tender process. (laughs) And then, uh, I didn't have time to bring it in as another full story, but there was a semi-related article here from Bloomberg on how to hack and steal an election. Really? Uh, yeah. So this is actually from somebody who's been doing this in South America for a while and exposes some of the techniques so that the rest of the world can be on the lookout for them. So sadly, I haven't had time to dig into that story too, but uh, I figured viewers might be interested in going to read that.
0: Yeah, I uh, so I th- I think and you tell me if this is right, Alan. Is this the story you're talking about from yep. Bloomberg? Yeah. Um, and so uh, is that in the show notes?
1: Yep. At the it's the last link in that story. Okay, great.
0: So, um, not a lot of uh, not a lot of technical commentary on this particular one, but it's in the show notes if somebody yeah. wants to read it, huh?
1: Yeah. I figured. Uh, you know, normally we'd go in the roundup, but because it was kind of semi related to our kind of string here of, uh. People's secrets coming out because of whistleblowers, I figured uh, yeah. it made sense to just bundle it with here.
0: Yeah, whistleblowers and leaked information seems to be a big t- a big theme this week, huh? L- last episode, yeah. you guys were, were talking about that. and yep. uh this
1: one. And yeah. It's, and th- it's th- made th- a big th- impact over the last couple of years.
0: For sure. Anything else on, on this last story or, or on the oh, Bloomberg no, piece?
1: That's, that's- that's about it for that one.
0: Great. Well, so, um, as, as you can probably imagine, uh, coming up on, uh, Linux Fest time, we have been spending a disproportionate amount of time working on various little side projects. And, um, the latest thing that has Chris up in a frizzy is he wants to play with Android N, right? And, um, his current phone doesn't allow him to install Android N. And so he has gone back to playing with the Nexus 5. Um, and so one of the things we did was I had brought it back. He was kind enough to loan it to me for a couple of months. Um, And he has he has opened my eyes to what the what the newer versions of Android can do. But one of the things uh, was that if we're going to install Android and he wanted to activate it. And so, uh, of course, I didn't have it still activated on my account when I brought it back here. And he says, well, let's activate it. Well, we're sitting at the studio and he had to be on the air with you. Because this is about like 40 minutes before he was going to go on the air. And so he's like, well, how do we get this thing activated? Well, it turns out I never leave home without a Ting SIM card. And so I was able to uh, grab the SIM card out of my suitcase. We were able to put it in and we were able to get the phone activated on the Ting network in in just a matter of minutes. And now he has a useful phone that he can actually use. And uh, and we we didn't have to go to a store. We didn't have to wait in line. We didn't have to fill out any forms. We were just able to do it on you the have fly. Have to wait on hold, right? And and you know what the great thing is after Linux Fest, I fully expect him to go back to his primary phone. Guess what? He's not going to have to pay you know the rest of the year of that contract or the next two years because he signed a two year agreement or some dumb thing like that. No, when he's done with it, he'll just log into his portal and he shut the phone back off, and then he'll have paid the whatever it is like six, six bucks. dollars, yeah, for him to use it. Now uh, you'll have to forgive my ignorance. Do we have a ting code to use for uh, TechSnap listeners?
1: Yes, I don't remember what. It's
0: <laughs> It's not in front of me. That's great. I uh, we are terrible. Any at this, minute, somebody will come bursting through that door right over there. You'll see them lean in. Somebody I will take in my... the
1: chat room should know that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Maybe that'll happen. Or, like I said, somebody will come in. They'll lean into my ear. I'll listen like that, and then and then we'll have the code to use for the snap listeners. Yeah. Uh, or it will I come through totally on Telegram. Know that. Or yeah, it will come through totally on the chat room. That.
1: Techsnap.ting.com. Tech techsnap techsnap TechSnap.Ting.com. Everybody knows it's TechSnap.Ting.com. TechSnap.Ting.com. Did the Good, tell you That's it's TechSnap? I it. Good, good. I was, trying right, to remember, uh, I was trying to remember the coupon code, but it's not a coupon code. It's a URL.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you know what? Actually, that would have been a pretty good guess, right? The show name yeah. and then .Ting.com. That would have been pretty
1: yeah. simple. They make it easy, uh, like okay. everything else there.
0: All right. Well, so, uh, so much for perfectly smooth ad reads that time, huh? <laughs> yeah,
1: that
0: happened. Um, so, Alan, tell me about this next story.
1: Yeah. So it, the, the headline is Researcher, researchers find flaw in visa database. And everybody's like, ooh, my visa. What am I going to do? And it's like, no, not that kind of visa. And you're like, oh, OK, so it's not such a big deal. It's like, no, actually, it's a really big deal. Uh, so, systems run by the U.S. State Department that issue travel visas that are required for visitors from most other countries to actually come into the U.S. Uh, has been comp- uh, had some security flaws. Uh, so, this is a very important security consideration as the application process for getting the visa is when most of the security checks are done. For example, you know, I think it was last year, 2,700 people uh, were refused a visa because of suspected terrorist ties and so on. So, you know, that database and the comments in it are basically what decide if you're allowed to come into the country or not. So, somebody compromises it and can change stuff. You know, foreign countries can sneak spies into the country or terrorists can get people through that shouldn't have and so Mm -hmm. on. So, uh, cyber defense experts found security gaps in a State Department system that could have allowed hackers to doctor visa applications. Sorry. Sorry doctor visa applications or pill for sensitive information from the half a billion records on file in the database. Wow. Uh, though uh, defenders of the agency downplayed the threat and said the vulnerabilities would be difficult to exploit, they were still there. Now they say, uh, brief to high-level officials across the government, the discovery that visa-related records were potentially vulnerable to illicit changes sparked concern because foreign nationals are... Uh, relentlessly looking for ways to plant spies inside the United States and terrorist groups like ISIS have expressed their uh, desire to exploit the U.S. visa system to get people into the country. As I say, after commissioning an internal review of its cyber defenses several months ago, the State Department learned that its Consular Consolidated Database, or CCD, which is the government's uh, backbone for vetting travelers to and from the U.S., was at risk of being compromised uh, though no breach has been actually detected, according to sources at the State Department. So luckily, this was found by an internal audit, not after the fact when the database has been Yeah, gone. boy, I'll say. Yeah. Uh, one of the interesting things is, uh, as one of the largest biometric databases in the world, covering almost anyone who has applied for a U.S. passport or visa in the past 20 years, the CCD holds such personal information as a photograph of you, all your you know name and all that information – your fingerprints, your social security or other identification number, like your passport number if you're from another country, and even what schools uh, your children might go to and all kinds of information like that. You know, I know uh, my information record in the, uh, that database even has an iris scan of my eye. Really? like that. Yeah, because I'm uh, – uh, Okay, uh, you have to tell me. How did they get an iris scan? Oh, I volunteered for that in order to get uh, global entry. You're, you're, t- you're
0: telling me that your global entry program requires you to go get your iris scanned?
1: Yes. Uh, so when I come back into Canada or go into the US, I walk up to a machine and scan my iris and don't have to talk to a customs agent.
0: I'm I'm in shock. I just that that seems like a whole new level of of, of profiling and, and and logging and and yeah. data collection. I, I don't even, I don't even have words. Okay, anyway. Uh, so well, I don't have to stand in line behind a bunch of people. Though. Yeah, but Alan, you've given your biometrics up to
1: the government who. who well, it's an iris scan. It's not very good. Yeah. Well, you know, I'd rather give my iris scan than my fingerprint. Then that makes me question the security uh, of, the the under, yes. yeah, exactly. of the global scan. Okay,
0: yeah. So if I can fake an iris scan, I can be Alan Jude for the day.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, you can at least uh, cross the border between US and Canada freely. Right?
0: Uh, so anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah. I I don't know. Uh, anyway, back to the story. So, um, yeah. any other thoughts?
1: I uh, just uh, every uh, in front of the uh, House panel recently, uh, this top State Department official said every visa decision we make is a national security decision. So having that database compromise where anybody could inject comments about it is kind of a big thing. I also say, uh, despite repeated requests for official response by ABC News, uh, the head of the State Department and others were unwilling to say whether the vulnerability. Uh, has been resolved, or offer any further information about the efforts to patch uh, the problem. So we don't actually know if this problem has been solved or not. But at least they're really? aware that it exists. Well, I and guess that's admitting that's a problem have. is a first step. Yeah, uh, but yeah, they don't want to talk about whether they fixed it or not. So that kind of suggests that they haven't. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand if they have a general policy against talking about it ever, but. It it definitely does kind of lean towards Yeah, yeah because the
0: general that. policy about ever talking about it ever means that you and I are going to sit here and debate whether or not the problem's been fixed or not, and nobody actually knows. Yeah.
1: That's great. Uh, State Department documents from uh, 2011 described the CCD as an unclassified but sensitive system uh, connected to other federal agencies like the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Defense Department. Uh, the database contains more than 290 million passport related records, 184 million visa records, and 25 million records on U.S. citizens who live overseas. Uh, because the CCD's importance to national security, ensuring its data integrity, availability, and confidential- uh, confidentiality is vital, said the State Department's Inspector General when he warned about this database in 2011. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Anything else you have to add to that, Alan? Uh, I just hope nobody's gone in there and messed around.
0: <laughs> and hopefully it is fixed, and that we just—they uh, have a policy against talking about it being fixed.
1: Yeah. Want
0: uh, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, we can we can hope anyway. All right. So um, before we move on, we want to talk about IX Systems. IX Systems slash TechSnap, I believe, is the URL yep. that gets you uh, that lets them know that you are a viewer of the TechSnap program, and. IX Systems. I've only had the pleasure of working this company one time in my professional career, but basically, it was—I mean, it was 100% pleasant. Um, and essentially, what they do is they build servers, and specifically, servers that have Intel processors in them. And yep. the the the—I'm sure you probably could talk for hours, as I think you use them uh, yes. pretty heavily, right?
1: Oh yes. Uh, if you check out that server Envy, uh, server Envy blog post right there, they show one of the machines they built uh, recently. That's really cool. Uh, but in general the big difference here over going to someone like Dell or HP is you're not buying a system that's been sitting on a shelf that was built already they custom build each machine for each customer. And so in this machine they built uh, what's uh, a four up uh 4U system so it's actually four separate computers in one 4U chassis. Yeah. Yeah, so you, and start- you can
0: see I was just going to say, you essentially, you start to encroach on the on that idea of like uh, like the Facebook open rack kind of a deal where yeah. everything, where every single compute node is specifically designed for that application or that use case.
1: Yeah. And so actually, in this one, they have eight computers. So there are eight computers in one 4U chassis. So each one's about half the width of the regular rack mount, and then there's four on each side. And then they have uh, two 10 gigabit uh, network cards, uh, SFPs plus the regular uh, dual onboard gigabit regular LAN, and then they have the uh, two external JBOD connectors to connect more disks to them. Uh, so you can wire all this together and get this super storage node that's got uh, you know, 160 gigabits of uh, network capacity. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh, so on top of buying this massive machine that's got eight machines in it, the mm-hmm. customer wanted six of them. Geez. Well, you know, yeah. what the, you know what the great
0: thing about that is? I bet they got great pricing.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, well, uh, you wouldn't expect to get the level of pricing you do because they're custom building each machine specifically mm-hmm. for you. But usually because of that, you end up saving a lot of money. Because if you buy an off-the-shelf machine, they basically come in you know small, medium, and large. Right. And if you need really large storage but not really large CPU, they don't make that. Whereas iX will custom build that. And unless you cut corners where you can – where it's not going to impact your workload. You know, you're getting a server that is exactly what you need it to do. Uh, and that makes a big difference. But the other thing is, you can go to them and just describe what you're trying to do and not know exactly what hardware you need to do it, and they have that knowledge. You know, you're not talking to just a salesperson. You're talking to an engineer that actually knows how to put the pieces together and actually build the system that's right for you. Gotcha. Yeah. And that's that's why we use them. Because, you know, even though I'm Quite good at most of this stuff. I had never used like multi path SAS before to connect each hard drive to two different controllers in case one of the cables went bad or something. And so I had to get their help with that, and it was amazing.
0: Yeah, going back, I, I've only used them once, and it was for a client that they were actually looking at a competitor for um, uh, basically a file s- server solution, mm-hmm. and uh, they were actually able to help me out uh, and and work with me and the client um, to make sure that they were they were showing the client that they could offer a more competitive advantage. And yeah, that custom we are working exactly for you, uh, and 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 custom tailoring a solution for you. That's definitely felt throughout the sales process.
1: Yeah, well, and the other thing is. It's also faster. I don't know how. Like, generally, you know, if you want something custom built, it's like, oh, it's going to take an extra month or whatever. But, you know, I ask, when, they, when they give you a date that they're going to ship it, it ships that day. And then FedEx gets it to you real quick. And, you know, Not I've all computer manufacturers, how... manufacturers do that. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is the burn in process. After they build the machine for you, they run it for three days running their software. You know, they just use FreeBSD because that's who they are. But they actually burn the machine in for three days making sure, you know, the hard drives aren't going to fail, right? Google study found that if a hard drive is going to fail, it usually fails within the first 36 hours. So they run it for twice that to make sure any of the hard drives that are going to be duds, they've already dealt with that before they ship the machine to you. You know, you can have them, you know, install whatever operating system you want, you know, BSD or Linux Mm -hmm. or Windows or whatever. And, you know, when you order the machine, you fill out this worksheet and you tell them, like, how you want the BIOS configured, you know? (coughs) It's so like, how do you want? What drives do you want it to boot off of? How do you want it configured? And that makes a big difference because I have them shipped directly to a data center, where I'm oh. never, like, there's machines I've never physically touched. I've, d- I've never even thought,
0: I've never different. even thought about that. I suppose you would. Ha- I suppose you're using like IPMI or something like that.
1: Yeah, but uh, they installed the OS and configured the IP addresses for me, so that right. when it got to the data center, they just plugged it in the Ethernet ports and the machine was online and running. Wow. And I didn't have to, and you know, otherwise I would have had to pay $125 an hour for a tech at the data center who doesn't know anything about BSD to try and install BSD and configure the IP addresses for me. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. Well, yeah. uh, Alan, anything else for this week's BSD now? Uh, or oh, TechSnap, I'm sorry. Uh,
1: we, uh, well, <laughs> this is also the point where we normally advertise about this week's episode of BSD now.
0: Great. See, you are reading my mind. So anything else for <laughs> TechSnap or uh, what sorry. is this BSD now thing?
1: Uh, for takes not really we're done uh, for bsd now um, this week's episode i haven't recorded yet so i have no idea what it's about oh really well it's uh, it, it's guaranteed to have that super interesting out.
0: things about bsd and, and an awesome ha- interview oh okay there's an interview
1: so you know something about it There's always an it. interview Oh. uh and then <laughs> well, that um, makes it easy it'll it'll be out by time you're watching this so go download it if you haven't already well there you go so we have feedback.
0: We'll, uh, I guess we'll, we'll go on to that then. Now it's time for some TechSnap email. Uh, feedback coming in answered by Alan June. So uh, the first one, Alan.
1: Yes.
0: Uh, encrypted SSH keys. How okay is it to store them on Dropbox? How much, do the, how much does the length... Oh, so I'll answer the
1: first question first. Okay. Uh, if they're actually encrypted, I suppose that's okay. You know, if you need somewhere safe to store them, uh, just make sure you have a really good passphrase on those so that it can't be cracked. But-
0: a- am I allowed to respectfully disagree with you? Yes. Okay. I respectfully disagree with you.
1: Uh, in general, I know I wouldn't want to store my keys anywhere else. You know, if you want to print it out and on paper and put it in a lockbox or something, maybe. But yeah, I, the, I wouldn't want to put mine in Dropbox.
0: The fundamental but- problem I have with backing up uh, SSH keys in general is because of the way that asy- uh, a uh, you know um, asymmetric encryption works mm-hmm. – If those keys are ever found and copied, you'd have no way of knowing that they are found and copied and then you, so essentially you get a couple years down the road and basically every morning you have to wake up and ask yourself, are my SSH keys compromised? And if so, if I have them on all those servers, how many people have access, you know, to those servers? And so, for me personally, I have before I had the YubiKey. I every time I got a new laptop, I generated new SSH keys. And was it a pain to go through all fifty or sixty servers that I manage monthly and propagate them? You betcha. And was it a pain when I had specific contracts where I wasn't allowed to propagate SSH keys, and so I had to fill out a bunch of paperwork and send them in and, and walk Yes, it was a huge pain. But I, I really believe that strongly that it's that much of a security risk. And so the nice thing about the YubiKey is never giving up the private key. I never actually ever worry about carrying that key with me. I can't back it up per se, but as long as I don't lose the key, I'm fine, and I can go from machine to machine.
1: right. And even if it gets stolen, it has... Right? Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, if it gets stolen, one there's the protection of the pin that that if it gets if it's attempted to be decrypted three times or more incorrectly, it will self destruct. But the more important thing is if the YubiKey and this would apply to SSH keys too. If I knew that the SSH keys were compromised or if I know my YubiKey is stolen, I will simply void them off of the servers. Right. The concern I have with like storing them on Dropbox is I would not know. Right. If a Dropbox employee goes and takes my SSH keys, I have no way of knowing that they were even taken. And right. that's concerning to me.
1: So right. the second so part... encrypting them first helps, but yeah, it's still, you know, I would... If I was going to back up my SSH keys, I'd use TarSnap because it's encrypted on my machine with the right. only I have before it's sent out to the cloud. Right. Whereas Dropbox is only encrypted on the cloud with one key for all of Dropbox, yep. which is specific to you. Yep. That's not a bad way because then then
0: at that point, essentially it becomes like any other sensitive data. Is you're just trying to protect it. But just consider your SSH keys like plain text passwords. Yeah. Um second question comes in and it is well it's from the same person but he has a couple of questions and he says how much does the length affect the time taken to crack it?
1: Uh a lot and that's kind of the point. Uh however, it also affects the time it takes to uh open the session every time. Right. Like uh I started migrating to a kind of obscenely large key just for fun. Mm-hmm. Um and then when I went and used it on my old single-core 1.5 gigahertz netbook, mm-hmm. uh, it took like four seconds to log in every time because <laughs> the key took so long to to do the math. Uh, and I also noticed that on my phone, not so much my newer Android multi-core phone, but w- before when I had a like a Windows phone that was like 600 megahertz, mm-hmm. uh, I actually ended up generating a more modest like 20, uh, 1024-bit key for my phone to use for SSH mm-hmm. because my regular 4096-bit key used up too much battery on my phone every time I wanted to log in. Sure. And took too long. Yeah. And usually, if I'm on my phone, I'm trying to do something in a hurry because yeah. I'm on my phone, I, I, right? I,
0: I've got to be honest with you. In my, in, on my worst day, I never had, I've never gone that high with SSH keys. I mean, right. I, I probably well, should have. It's probably insecure, but... 2048
1: is basically the minimum now. Uh, that was, like, my max. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and And 4096 is what I use now. But uh-huh. we're talking, I was using 4096 in, like, 2003, which was a complete waste. Uh, and, you know, Well, the other big thing is you kind of want to rotate your keys, right? Yeah, uh, Right. Maybe, well, I don't, but... <laughs> right. But in general, you probably want a new key at least once every year or two, just for good measure.
0: You know what? And that works out, that timing works almost Perfectly with how long I would go between switching machines, and if I switch a the machine, then I would get a new key. So that that
1: well, and, and the other thing is, as they keep bumping up what the minimum key length is to now, you probably don't want less than twenty forty eight bits. If you had a smaller one, that kind of forced you to upgrade, right?
0: All right. Our next email comes in from NetWiz, and he wants your advice on routers. He says, I've been setting up networks for small businesses lately, and I typically use TP-Link SafeStream Gigabit Dual WAN VPN routers. And he gives a specific model number, which is an ER6020. They work great. And I've never had any trouble with them. However, I need to begin setting up VPN solutions for several of my clients, accessible from remote locations. Security is of the utmost importance. I know you're a big fan of P- PFSense and BSD. You've gotten me interested in switching to open source for my client needs. I've been looking at the Net uh, the NetGate RCCVE2440 systems to run PFSense. And then he gives a link to it. I've also become aware of products from Microtech, powered by their router OS, based on the Linux kernel. I've heard Noah, that's me, talking about his Microtech routers from time to time, and he gives a link. My main focus is on wired Ethernet routers, not wireless. I'd really like to begin experimenting with a myriad of new uh, capabilities available on those platforms, although I don't have a budget to invest heavily in both vendors. It would be great if you could share some insight into the pros and cons of each platform and also be interested in hearing... Um, other suggestions or recommendations you may have of what your favorite router is. Thanks in advance for your help. I really enjoy, enjoy TechSnap. Keep up the great work.
1: Uh, yeah. Um, for me, I mostly run PFSense on just a server, like a, a machine. Right. Sometimes even, for my house, it was an old desktop until recently. Mm-hmm. Um, uh but, yeah, they work great. Um, I don't know that much about the router rest from Microtech, but it's not mm-hmm. completely open source, right? No, it's not. It's not an open source solution. Right. Um, you know, the, the
0: way I look at it, I, I don't know that if we went head to head and I took a Microtech and you took a PFSense, I, I can't say with definitive certainty that um, I would come out ahead on the feature side. Um, PFSense is a very, very capable, uh, yes. uh, you know, routing operating system and, and a complete solution holistically with basically no compromises. My problem that I have run into is typically I am working with, uh, with businesses that one, um, they want to see uh, you know a spec sheet, they want to see who mm-hmm. makes the product, they want to see what the MSRP is, they want to see what the price we can give it to them. they want to know what the warranty is they want and they want all this information, and typically they want it presented in some sort of a you know a nonsense meeting where you're sitting down with a bunch of people that don't understand the technology and you're explaining it right
1: on like a glossy portfolio thing
0: right, yeah, exactly uh, uh, bullets people love yeah. bullets, lots and lots of bullet po- bullet points, little dots, people yeah. like that um, <laughs> but the but the point is is that i can't it is difficult for me to sell a solution where I say, well, we're going to buy essentially a server and then install this operating system on it that will do what you expect your router to do. Typically, they already, and especially in my case, a lot of times they already have a Cisco router and we are swapping that out. And so they're trying to do this, you know, they're taking their bullet points from the last guy and comparing I'm them. Comparing them, yeah. That's right. And so and so for me, that is where Microtech has really shined, is is in a pre-built solution that I can bring in and say, here, for XYZ dollars, we will come in, we'll stick it in your rack, we'll plug in the cables exactly how they were, we'll configure it, and it will do all the things you want it to do. Now, yeah. for as far as security, I don't think either PFSense or uh, Microtech I would have a security concern. Would you, Alan? Uh,
1: not really. Uh, Microtech in the past, it had a couple of, uh, there was one with the, there is a secret SSH account or something and or uh, oh, really? a flaw in the SSH daemon or something. I think they used um, DropBear or something. Hmm. I forget the context, but an older episode of Textmap. But, you know, they fixed that a long time ago, so it's probably fine. Um, you know, NetGate does provide a bit more of the stuff you were talking about to try to bring PFSense up to that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, having support contracts and, and, you know, pre-built machines that you can buy with it already on it so it's like an appliance instead of, you know, buy a server, and then install this on it. Uh, but yeah, like you're saying, the MicroTik has a bit more of that, uh, I don't know, the corporate wrapping paper right. uh, that, that can make a big difference uh, in convincing the decision makers. So, you know, you could probably go get away with PFSense if you can convince them, but if not, the is also a good option. Uh, in the end, it, you have to decide which features you want. Right. Um, the big thing can be, how many VPN connections do you want, how much Crypto? Do you need? You know, um, how much total bandwidth are you doing across the VPN? Because then maybe something, uh, you know, depending on your needs, you might actually need something with a bigger CPU, right? Uh, to to do that much VPN, yeah, because uh, you're doing a lot of encryption. Um, and so it could get to the point where you need an actual, you know, an Intel server to do it. Right. And oftentimes not, because a lot of these, even the smaller ones, sometimes have uh, the crypto offload cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that I don't think it's out yet, but Netgate's working on a device that has. The Intel, what's their other thing like Atom? I forget. Search with a C. Anyway, No, it's so something new. new. I mm. forget uh, that thing and uh, using the Intel Quick Assist uh, Crypto Accelerator.
0: Hmm. Well, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll I'll leave with I'll I'll wrap with uh, with one last uh, food for thought, and that is that. You know, one of the things that we have deployed at Alta Speed, and I actually, it wasn't my idea, I actually stole it from a previous employer, but we have this, uh, we have, uh, yeah, I don't know, a program you might call it, called Professional Development. And basically, what the program outlines is that any piece of hardware that we have in the shop can be taken by any employee for any reason to play with, to learn about, and the only requirement is when a work order is issued or when it, when a request is put in for that equipment to go out to deployment for a site, <clears throat> it has to be returned Right. And the idea is that I have found my personal experience is that I learn best by playing. The only way that I will really know how to use a router, for example, is to put it in my house and live with it for twenty-four it. hours a day, yeah. seven days a week for like six months, and then and only then will I be a hundred percent comfortable in saying, "Yep, I can go out to a site and deploy that." and And that level of confidence of saying, you know, you walk into a site and they say that they want you to, you know, they give you a list of things to do, and you look at it and you go. I did that last night so I could get my game server running. You know, that kind of confidence is something you can only get by playing with it. And one of the things that I really like about Microtech is that you can buy one of their $39 boxes. And it does have wireless in it um, and put it in and your wife won't complain because it's not running on some big PC, you know, somewhere. And you stick it next to the cable modem. She doesn't really know the difference. But when you log into the interface, it's identical to that of their one thousand dollar, you know, to you thing that you would actually put in at some large scale deployment. Right. And so you can gain those skills on that smaller box and then those skills transition into large scale deployment. And I find that to be pretty valuable, too.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know. Like you said, yeah. And the nice thing with PSNs is that you can download for free and stick it on an old machine and and try it out. Or heck, Uh,
0: even a virtual box, right? I mean, if you're just trying to learn about it,
1: great in virtualization as well.
0: So RMH writes in and he says, "Hey there, Chris and Ellen. Thank you for this awesome show. Here's my question, though. I want to set up a Radius server and also have other users be able to log in and use the Wi-Fi as." as in some coffee shops they'd have to log in with their Wi-Fi, and then on the landing page they'd get access to enter in they'd get asked to enter in a token which grants them a determined amount of time to use the Wi-Fi. is there anything like that in free bsd and if not most probably
1: for linux thanks in advance right. yeah so radius is easy to do for either i think we linked a tutorial on an episode of bsd now a couple of months ago when someone asked about it uh Although you can also get captive portals that don't need radius that can do very similar things. Right. Uh, I know that uh PFSense has one built in, and then um mm-hmm. OpenSense, which is a fork of PFSense mm-hmm. has a different one built in that's slightly different. And uh, I'm sure the Microtech has some kind of captive M- portal system.
0: Microtech has a captive portal system. Also, there's a device called GuestGate um by IntelliNet, and it is basically a drop-in uh a, a portal a captive portal box that you just plug in. Um any of the ubiquity access points. So if you and they're coming down in price significantly. I mean, mm-hmm. for fifty nine bucks, you can buy one of those. The controller, which will run on uh, your favorite Linux distribution of choice, also supports the captive portal. And you know, but you know, and that that's answering his question, right? But yeah. I would strongly, in the strongest possible terms, encourage you not to put a captive portal on whatever it is you're thinking of putting a captive portal on. It sounds like a great idea, but. You know, I, we work in the hospitality. Most of them are terrible. They <laughs> are, and you know, we work in the hospitality industry. I see it every single day. The amount of tickets that goes up when you put in a captive portal skyrockets, and the problem is that people, when they open up their whatever device, they don't necessarily think about opening up a web browser and making sure they're on the internet. They see it connected, they get an IP address, so their device tells them they're connected, and then they open up Netflix or they open up their email app or whatever it is. Yeah. Now, various different operating system: GNOME, actually,
1: Android. I'm, tries to tell you hey you need to log in but right. it doesn't always
0: work. it doesn't always catch it and lastly the other thing is you know if I if I have a guest that comes over to my house and I give them the password and they put it in like a, you know as a as you know a Wpa deal mm-hmm. then their device is authenticated onto the network and they can come and go as they please and they'll continue to have internet if you do this token generation thing it, it is doable and there's many systems that can do it I think basically all of them, any commercial-grade system, but you run into the problem of every time they want to get back on the internet, and most of them are 12-hour timeouts, then they have to open that web browser up and type it back in, and that gets super annoying really quick. Also, I hate it when I think I'm connected to the internet. I All my phone calls come in over IP, and so I've been in places that require because certain hotel chains require captive portals, and my phone will connect to their stupid network, and then uh, I'm not actually. It times on the it. out after
1: 12 hours. And, you're and right,
0: then, right. And I don't. And my phone thinks worse, it's going Some of
1: them have idle timeouts, so if you're not using it enough, you get logged off after only you know an hour or something, uh, to try to you know keep fewer things associated. Yeah. In most cases, people aren't stealing that much Wi-Fi. You know, it, it's probably not worth. Having the captive portal and making everybody's life miserable.
0: No, and, you know, know, I think a lot of that comes from, you know, the, you know, the, the fundamental misbelief that it, it it offsets some sort of liability. But, um, but going back, you know, my phone will connect and then I don't get any of my phone calls because it's connected to this captive portal. And so what we've actually had to do is every client that we set Wi-Fi up for, we actually have a special network that is, it's not broadcasted, um, that's secured with a, a PSK key because I need to be able to connect my devices and not deal with that crap. Um, so if there's any possible way I can convince you not to set up a captive portal, that's my plea to you not to do it.
1: Uh, in the chat room, he says uh, it's for a non-profit public Wi-Fi and he needs to cause, uh, have time limits. Yeah,
0: see, see he's dealing with the yeah. same thing I am.
1: Yeah, you, for you, the you,
0: hospitality
1: side, right. I would say you're better off with just a password and change it once a week or once a month or something.
0: Yeah. I mean, so what, he, what he's getting and he's having the same issue I am, which is that he gets he gets sent a, a specification list from an organization and they say every you know 12 hours or something, we want to reaffirm that that person belongs on the network. And I don't think he has a choice in it. It, it sounds like he's his hand is being forced like mine is often. Um, and it, it's it's a real pain. It causes it, it, it. All I can tell you is I hope you have a good ticketing system because your tickets are about to go through the roof.
1: Yep. (laughs) But yeah, uh, Radius server will run fine on FreeBSD or Linux, and there are lots of captive portals to choose from. Uh, You know, depending what kind of stuff you're doing with, Mm -hmm. you know, a PFSense or OpenSense can do that automatically for you by setting it up, or there are tons of options. All right. Anything else for this week's episode of TechNap, Alan? Uh, No, that's it for the feedback. All right.
0: Then on to the roundup. It's time for the roundup segment, and there's, I'm finding out that Hexnap rounds up a whole lot. Alan, can you tell me about uh, Microsoft suing the Justice Department?
1: Yes, uh, so Microsoft suing the Justice Department over gag orders. Specifically, they want to be able to tell their customers when the government is stealing their email. Or, well, I wouldn't say stealing. But when the government makes Microsoft <laughs> hand over your email, Microsoft would really like to be able to tell you about it. And currently they're being gagged by the Department of Justice and not allowed to tell that. And so they're suing to try to solve the problem. That seems like
0: a personal, personal uh, a perfectly reasonable thing to be upset about. Exactly. How how about um, a, a root cause for the analysis of the recent Flash Day
1: zero vulnerability? <laughs> you said all those words out of order. I did? Yes. A mm-hmm. uh, root cause analysis of a recent Flash zero day. Uh, so this is um, over at Trend Micro, and they basically looked at one of the recent Flash zero day exploits and found out where the mistake in the Flash code actually started and how it became a zero day. So if you're interested in how these flash zero days come into being, uh it's a great article to check out. It's about uh, CVE-2016-1010. 10, 10. All right. Canadian police obtaining BlackBerry's global decryption key? Yes. So uh since 2010, the Canadian police have had access to glo- uh BlackBerry's global decryption key, which means that they could decrypt uh messages and so on sent out a BlackBerry even from other countries. Uh BlackBerry didn't think to put different keys for different countries, I guess. They just had one global backdoor key that decrypts everything. And uh, basically, this is a story about why we shouldn't do that. Yeah. And well, correct <laughs> me if I'm
0: wrong, but this is essentially what the FBI was trying to get at with Apple, wasn't it? Yeah. Kind of the same thing? Yeah.
1: yeah. And uh, I mean, think that's part of the reason why the FBI was so upset. They were like, well, we've we've had this from blackberry before why doesn't everybody else want to do it it's like because it's a really bad idea
0: yeah exactly all right terabytes of
1: downloads yes uh so this is interesting um uh an australian mobile provider uh telstra had an outage and so they gave all their customers free data for a day basically on this one particular day uh after the outage you could use as much mobile data as you want uh and that was their way of making up for the fact that the whole cell phone network was down for a while Uh, And a customer set a record by using a 994 gigabytes in a single 24-hour period. Uh, Having enough speed to actually download a terabyte over your phone, uh, (coughs) is pretty impressive, honestly. Uh, And so that's why I thought it was worth mentioning. I would say so. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that any network here is fast enough to actually let you do that. For sure. Uh, In particular, though, uh, some people were using it as uh, evidence that you know, this is why some of the data limits we get, like at my phone, I got like a one gigabyte limit that cost me a silly amount of money. Uh, isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily make sense if the network has the ability to do that much traffic. At the same time, I can also see why they put limits on so people don't just use that amount of traffic all the time.
0: Yeah, I guess my thought
1: on it... I think the on it- way to do it is to have a metered rate where you pay for the amount of bandwidth you use rather, rather than saying, you know, you buy two gigabytes and hopefully use less than that. And if not, we charge you overage. Yeah. So I think metered usage makes more sense, but it has to be at a price that is also reasonable.
0: Yeah. If only we had a company that did something like that for maybe six dollars a month.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> if only they were in Canada. Yeah, well,
0: they are in Canada. They just don't have service They're from in Canada. Canada. They just not <laughs> I can't use my phone. Yeah. Right. Sophisticated bribe scheme helps crooks whitelist malware on Chinese antivirus.
1: Yeah, so this one's interesting. So you write a virus, but it's going to be blocked by the antivirus. So what do you do? You find a company that makes games, which has a relationship with the antivirus vendor, where they uh, send in the hashes of their games and get them on the whitelist so that the virus scanner never picks them up as a virus. Then you bribe somebody at the game company to list your malware in the whitelist so that the virus scanner won't pick it up that uh yeah that is a that's a a brilliant scheme yeah it's a it's a bad trust relationship between the antivirus vendor and the game manufacturer Mm -hmm. uh but yeah i'm sure the antivirus vendor wasn't expecting the game people to be bribed (laughs) i also wonder how much money they got for it was it enough yeah
0: to offset their relationship yeah um optional windows update oh i'm sorry yeah go ahead Optional Windows Update aims to halt wireless mouse hijacking. That's a thing? Yes,
1: yes. so uh, Microsoft's wireless mouse and keyboard apparently uh, it, by snooping on it, I can get the key or whatever and send a signal that will your computer will interpret as being from your keyboard or mouse from up to 100 meters away. So then I can just type stuff on your keyboard. And click uh, so that- I can do like Windows run some command and then when the uh, screen pops up to be like uac or whatever i can use your mouse to click it i've
0: yeah i yeah that's
1: scary i'm glad my wire, my mouse and keyboard have wires
0: yeah i and that just seems more like a childish prank than an actual exploit like i i'm just yeah, i'm, I'm but, picturing like this guy sitting outside like his um, my office or something like looking through the window with his logitech keyboard no he has a 9 7 no no he has a eight yeah, yeah 840 he has an 840 and turn it on wait
1: binoculars and, and like typing on your screen yeah
0: yeah i just i don't know
1: yeah but at the same time if, say, the cash register system at such-and-such such a mom-and-pop store or whatever uses this wireless keyboard so that they don't have the extra wires running, yeah, then I can just start running up credit cards or whatever.
0: Suffice to say, I've set up enough POS systems that I can tell you the wireless keyboard and the mouse are the least of the security problems on that front. <laughs>
1: uh, uh, what, uh, oh, I was at the UPS store the other day, and uh-huh. just a bunch of USB ports exposed at the back of the machine. Just, I could just reach under the counter there and plug something
0: in. Mm-hmm. That yep. sounds about right.
1: Or worse, uh, I think some of the, uh, the barcode scanner and so on uh, simulate a keyboard. So if I put a little keylogger, you know, one of those really slim USB things, pull out the thing, put that in, plug it back in, I could spy on all the data as it went back and forth. Yeah. All right. Uh, GPG signature verification. At GitHub, yes. So uh, Git itself has supported this for a long time, but GitHub didn't. Now, uh, basically, if you do this, when you do commits to GitHub and then push them, they're signed with your GPG key, and you'll see there's a little verified symbol uh, beside your commit. So, you know, you can go by more than just it has a picture of my face beside it, but I actually signed this, and it's definitely from the real person, not someone pretending to be me, so that you can trust the software you're downloading. Well, that's always a good thing. Yeah. (laughs) Most stuff on GitHub is open source, so so you can always audit yourself, but really, you know, this is the trust relationships we want to
0: have if you can't break crypto break the client recovery of
1: plain text iMessage data yes so this is uh more kind of related to the apple thing uh this is the researchers you know iMessage isn't wasn't the center of the apple versus fbi case but uh they you know iMessage uses some fairly good encryption Uh, but the actual iMessage program itself has a bunch of flaws that you can use to get at the plain text without having to try to break the crypto, which is really hard. Hmm. And so this describes the flaws and how you can steal the plain text of people's iMessage messages. That's
0: good. Good thing I don't use iMessage. Mm -hmm. Um, Get loads of more free space on your Apple iPhone with this one (laughs) weird trick.
1: Yes. Seriously. So uh, the interesting thing is – you know, a lot of people buy an iPhone and with like 32 or 64 gigs of space and are very disappointed that a lot of that space is taken up by the iOS OS. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out if you go to iTunes and rent a movie and don't have enough space left to download it, it will magically find some space that it can get rid of in the OS portion of your storage. And suddenly you'll have more free space.
0: The stuff that uh, Apple told you was necessary
1: might not be as necessary as they thought it was what they told you. It seems like it's really there to force you to buy the more expensive version than anything else.
0: I don't know if I, you know, as much as I hate Apple and as much as I would love to sit here and rag on them, I don't know if I can agree with that. I, I think that probably what it is is that they have things that are beneficial to a lot of users. and they sim-
1: particular cash and things like that. Maybe. Yeah,
0: yeah, and then, and, then it, and then it just dumps it because it knows that the user really needs to, or really wants, apparently, to have that, you know, particular uh, storage Indeed. freedom so they can have their movie. I, I don't know if I necessarily would buy into Apple, you know preloads essentially with a bunch of junk just to seems like the easy way
1: to do that. I know it's so much that as as I think that the marketing should have to say how much of that is taken up by the OS or something right? If you're buying a 64 gig iPhone and you don't get anywhere near 64 gigs of usable space on it, that seems like bad advertising.
0: Yeah, well it's the same on Android though. Yeah. Um, Hacking team global export license revoked.
1: Yes, so hacking team uh, as we talked about before was these guys in Italy that make exploits and then sell them to people. Uh, not just governments, apparently. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Italian Ministry of Economical Progress has revoked their license to sell any of their stuff outside of the EU. So if hacking team wants to sell their products to governments and so on outside of the EU, they have to get special permission from the Italian government each time they want to make a sale outside of the EU. So hopefully this will uh, somewhat tamp down on the amount of exploits being stolen. But because they still have an open license inside the EU, probably not so much. I can understand the Italian government kind of – well, we don't want you selling to some of these bad countries, but we don't – also, we're perfectly happy to have more money coming into Italy. Right. Governments from the other countries, right? Exactly.
0: Laziness remains the great enemy of password security. Surprise, surprise.
1: Yeah. So this is an article over at com, and it basically uh, describes – actually, this one is a ransomware case from a hospital. And uh, after some interviews, they found out that – People were encouraged to use their last name as their password uh, because these were visiting doctors that were doing training and stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that results in everybody knowing everybody's password. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. You know, Uh, you have to wonder. It's one of the first things that attackers will guess because of how common it is. Well, I – you know, it's, it's interesting that you
0: say that. I'm actually kind of sitting here, spell, spellbound. I can honestly say in 10 years of doing IT, you know, IT, administration, security, whatever, I can honestly look back and say that we had a lot of really dumb password schemes. The user's last name, I can tell you definitively, without even having to think about it, that was never one.
1: Yeah. You would expect to have at least some level of password complexity requirements that would require more letters than that and at least a number or something, right? You would think Although- so. Although we've also seen cases where if your compl- password complexity requirements are too high, people will actually use a worse password because yes. they have to try to remember the complexity.
0: That is true. I, in fact, there was one website, I literally had the password of I've got a bunch, a bunch of coconuts, diddly dee dee, because I was sick of trying to guess one that would fit their stupid scheme. Yeah. Uh, so, website attempts to gain or to generate every possible patentable
1: invention. Am I reading that yes. right? Yes. So, in order to deal with patent trolls, this is a will basically machine generate every possible thing that you could make mm-hmm. or or invent, and release it under Creative Commons. It's called All Prior <laughs> Art. And so, this way, in the future, when somebody tries to patent something, you uh-huh. can point to this All Prior Art website and say, "No, so somebody invented that two years ago." Those people are my new favorite people. Exactly. That's it's the ultimate great. reverse patent troll. You know, and the thing if is, this actually works. It'll be amazing.
0: Well, I feel like patents are written by lawyers or by patent attorneys that are written in such a way that only other patent attorneys can understand and interpret what they mean so that anytime there's a question you have to go to a patent attorney
1: yes there's that but also uh there was one recently a company that makes these non-stack uh basically they make these paper pyramids that you put on top of a box so that you nobody will stay and it says no stacking so that Somebody won't – like they'll physically have to crush the thing in order to stack something on top of it. Uh They're suing FedEx because FedEx put a flat – like a sticker, a paper sticker on the box saying do not stack. And they're like, no, we own the patent on do not stack stickers. Well, Microsoft
0: copyrighted (laughs) the word start or patented the word start, which is an insanely unique word.
1: uh, Amazon patented being able to buy something with only one click.
0: Apps do not – an app store does not necessarily represent a store for apps. Yes
1: uh tro- things like that, and so those are all terrible uh and um so it'd be good you know, I can see where patents had a use, and probably still do mm-hmm. you know I, I have a friend who owns a patent on uh a coffee machine that makes coffee that'll do that no no, this one's for uh the Jewish Sabbath. you're not allowed to cook anything on oh. the Sunday, so it makes the coffee it does the boiling on the saturday and then <laughs> keeps it hot and then makes it's very complicated but <laughs> anyway. um, you know anyway there there's valid uses for patents but in software they're terrible and in a bunch of other places you know when companies patent it without no uh, intention of actually making the device it's defeating mm-hmm. the point of the patent mm-hmm. which is give the person who invents it first a short window to recoup their r&d of being the first person right some ad- first mover advantage but it's not meant to lock people out forever or the way patents get abused now.
0: Right. How about being able to identify a vehicle at the risk of collisions?
1: Yes. So if you put It's a license plate. That says SHA one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the, if there's one was 75, it would have already crashed.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, th- I think that's it for the roundup segment, right? Yep. That's the end of the show. All right. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of tech snap. Uh, for
1: Oh, oh, there, there's a Chris. No, I'm I see a Chris. I oh. I miss he you guys. Wanted, he just wanted to prove that he was still here. Yeah. So he would get credit for being in the episode. That's
0: right. Well, he said he actually told me before we started. Okay, here, I'll like, just put the hair in there. Here we go.
1: There,
0: there we go. <laughs> <laughs> that brings us to the end of this week's episode of TechSnap. Uh, Jupiterbroadcasting.com. Uh, click on shows. Click on TechSnap. I'm sure there's interesting things there. Te- is it TechSnap.reddit.com? Is that right? Yep. For the Reddit, and you yep. can submit stories there, or you can email into the show, TextNet at JupiterBroadcasting.com. I'm kind of making this up as I contact go. contact
1: page. Yep. Yeah, and, or the uh, contact
0: page. Right. Yes. JupiterBroadcasting.com. Uh, click TextNet from the drop down menu. And click on, or no, contact, and then choose TextNet from.
1: Also, people can follow you.
0: Oh, yeah, that's right. You could follow me on Twitter. I'm at, at Twitter at Kernel Linux.
1: Alan, yeah. uh, J- uh, you even are. Even though the show frame actually says I. Chris yeah. that's your name. Hey, we're busy, well, fo- Alan. Follow
0: both. Follow both. Yep. Follow, follow yep. both Chris uh, <laughs> at Chris Las, and follow at Kernel Linux And, Alan, you're on Twitter. In fact, you and I occasionally wore it out on the Twitter sphere. Yes.
1: Yeah. Right? So at Alan Jude. Yeah. Uh, and uh, also- Alan doesn't know how to get out of VI. When we, when we record it, uh, the show is live at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is 4 p.m. Eastern, which is 2000 UTC. Perfect.
0: Any other information that we have? <laughs> Uh, this is the worst show ever. We'll see you next ever. week. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Bye, bye, guys.